in this, I need to tell you that New City and the church that I pastored for, that I planted and then pastored for 36 years is an intentional cross-cultural church. And I want to just give some definition of terms to help you. You heard Joan say sometimes multicultural. She sometimes said multi-ethnic. Sometimes she said cross-cultural. Um, there's a distinction in these terms. You can be a multi-ethnic church. You can have people from various ethnicities or cultures and be monocultural. Okay? Now, so in other words, you could have a church like, say, Redeemer in New York City. 50% Asian, almost. It's a monocultural church. It's still a white church. Because everybody who comes there basically accepts white worship. It's, we will assimilate into it. We will accept it. We can, we can survive here. Okay? Um, and assimilation is part of the American experience. You have various countries, various language groups, various colors come here, and they say, okay, I need to assimilate into the American mainstream. Now, we have several exceptions to that. One exception is a group that was brought here against their will, namely Africans. And they were brought into this culture, and then brought here against their will, they were still segregated from it. So even those who wanted to assimilate into it were denied. So that is the whole uh, history of slavery, and of segregation, and of Jim Crow. And so it was the racism of America that created the black church. Um, you know, some people today said, well, why, you know, why are we so separated? Well, we have, there's a reason for it. There's a history here that, you know, the, the plantation owners, uh, the slave masters, they, for some of them, they did not want their slaves to learn the Bible. They did not want slaves to learn to read because reading and the stories of the Bible produced an aspiration for freedom. Now, we've all heard stories of how some slave masters use Christianity to teach selectively parts of the Bible. They say, obey your masters. Uh, Frederick Douglass is a great example. Who his, The master's wife taught him illegally how to read. And as he began to read, he realized the Christianity of the Bible is not the Christianity of the slave master. And I want to be free. And so he became a great spokesman for emancipation and for freedom. And he did so because of what he learned from the scriptures. It's a very powerful story of how the Bible helped breathe freedom in the people. Now, as black people gained their freedom, still the same experience happened. You know, I want to go to church. Now, they the story of the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church is the great story where black people came down to the main floor of the Methodist Church to pray. And they were grabbed and, and escorted out. They said, you can pray up in the balcony, but you cannot pray down here. And so they left and formed the first African-American denomination, the AME Church. So you have African Methodist Episcopal, you have African Methodist Episcopal Zion, you have the CME Church, you have the National Black Baptist Church, and the largest black denomination in America is the Church of God in Christ. Okay? And so what happened over the years is a very common worship began to be shared uh, among black folk. And uh, not all black people are the same. Not all black denominations are the same. Black Methodists worship a little differently uh, than black Baptists do. Uh, black Baptists worship differently than the Church of Christ does. Uh, even in our church, we've had people from the various traditions know the same song, but they sing them a little differently. And there's arguments. Wait a minute, that's not how you sing that song. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny, but you realize not all black folks are the same. But there is a commonality in black gospel, music, and worship. I'll give you an example. I was an army chaplain. And I went to Fort Dix, and they said, would you like to preach at the Gospel Chapel? And I said, oh, yeah, because to me, that was the most exciting place to be. 
and they said, and I said, where is it? They said, well, it's too big to be in the post chapel, so we have to have it in the post theater. So the post theater is packed out. All these African American soldiers, they're they're from all over the country, and the guy gets up and he says, we need uh, a band to play this morning. So if any of you are able to play, we have instruments up here. These young kids get up, they walk forward, pick up bass, pick up electric guitar, get on the drums, get on the Hammond B3. They all know the same songs. Then he says, we need a choir. Fifty soldiers stand up, they walk forward. They, get, they all know the same song. They don't practice. Boom! We're having a worship service. Okay? Why is that possible? And it's because of the crucible of racism forced black people into this kind of worship experience. And what was the result? Probably one of the strongest, greatest expressions of Protestant Christianity in the world. It is the crossover music. Uh, my wife has been on singing teams that have gone to France and Germany and, and a couple years ago to Japan. The Japanese are crazy about black gospel music. They have black gospel music choirs. They are singing the songs. They don't even speak English, but they're singing this song. And when they did concerts, the missionaries told them, we have never had this many Japanese men in our church before. Uh, it's an incredible attraction to this wonderful, beautiful, powerful, passionate music. But unfortunately, the sad part of it, it is a result of what racism did. It's a good result in the sense that African Americans are the largest, have the largest uh, percentage of evangelical Protestants than any other ethnic group in America. Now, they don't use the word evangelical. That's sort of an unknown word among black folk. But they believe the Bible. They believe Christ died on the cross for their sin. Now this is not to say every black church is a good church. It's not to say every black preacher is a, is a good preacher, just like we wouldn't say that about white churches. Very mixed. You have some wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, there's some great heresies that have come through that are very powerful in the black community. There's the apostolic church. They don't believe in the Trinity. T.D. Jakes, yeah. a great communicator, but he doesn't believe in the Trinity. Um, you have the uh, prosperity gospel, which affects both white and black people, but it really has hit the black community. So you have huge churches, uh, Cleflo Dollar. Um, you, you get folks, you know, who really... And a lot of it comes out of white folks from Oklahoma who... <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with Oklahoma. <laughs> it's really made an impact. So, but I will tell you, uh, there are some black preachers and black pastors who are absolutely fantastic. And um, there's a difference in in the style. And one of the one of the differences here is between what we call the cognitive and the emotional. Now. You know, when, you, when you're a preacher, you're preaching for the whole of the human being. You, you want his intellect, you want his heart, and you want his will, his volition. Okay, all three. And I will tell you, though, that the white community coming out of Northern Europe is afraid of emotion. And there, it's a very cognitive culture, very intellectual, very literary. We want to put everything in writing. So today, the churches we go to, they hand you a book when you arrive on Sunday morning. Okay? It was just written that week. Okay? It has everything in the worship laid out. And as they say in the white church, if anything happens that's not written in the bulletin, it's a work of the devil. <laughs> in the black church, if, if nothing happens that's not written in the bulletin, it's not the work of the Holy Ghost, because the Holy Ghost has to change something spontaneously, all right? And it's, it's really interesting, and it affects the preaching. So in a typical black church, you have, uh, if, a, if, a, if a black pastor is a good preacher, by the way, both there are good white preachers and good black preachers, good at preaching is what I mean. And uh, if you're a great black preacher, you know how to tell a story. You know how to use anecdotes. You know how to preach with rhythm and emotion. 
You know how to bring the people along, okay? There is a lot of oratorical art in black preaching. And it's not very often seen in white preaching. Uh, you can go hear a great white preacher, like Tim Keller, okay? But you don't go to hear Tim Keller for emotion, okay? You go to hear Tim Keller for quotes. <laughs> you, you go, whoa! I didn't even know that book had been written, let alone who wrote it and the four points that sum up what he's saying. <laughs> Tim Keller does. And I love Tim Keller. I consider him a friend, and I consider him a great man of God. Uh, I remember uh, James Montgomery Boyce. I don't know if any of you know that name. He used to be the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a great white Presbyterian church, and a great Bible scholar. And uh, most of his sermons were made into Bible commentaries. Uh, but I remember Joan and I, and I actually got to preach at 10th Press one time, but I told Joan, I said, I can never sit under Dr. Boyce every Sunday. There's no emotion here. It's just, I might as well just be a floating brain, you know? And I could, I would gain so much knowledge, but I, would, I wouldn't know what to do with it. In my opinion, the greatest preaching in the world is when you combine the two. You combine the art of the black preacher and the, and the cognitive of the great white preachers, and you put them in, and we've got some of those. We've got some. And I'll tell you, that's an experience. And a person, you know, you say, Pastor, where in the Bible do you get that church has to be an experience? I find it hard to think of God without it being an experience. Uh, I don't go to church to take notes. I go to church to get changed. I, I go to church to love God. And I will tell you that an awful lot of our churches just absolutely fail. They are boring. And so that's, I was always told in my preaching classes, that's the great sin of the preacher. To be boring is a great sin. We are preaching about great stuff! Oh, this reminds me, I didn't give an advertisement. Tomorrow I'm preaching. <laughs> three, three different places. Okay, I'm preaching at Christ the King, uh, Roxbury. In the morning, I'm preaching at in Dorchester at four, and I'm preaching at Quincy, Quincy among the Portuguese uh, tomorrow night at seven. And so you're all welcome. Tom wants me to tell you all of you are welcome to Quincy if you like. And cornbread for afterwards. All right. It'll be an experience. Yeah. But please don't come hear me preach three times. It'll you'll have a horrible Sunday. So what I'm trying to say is that cultures are different. And uh, one of the mistakes that a lot of Christians make is that, wait a minute, no, there's culture and then there's Christianity. When you become a Christian, you no longer have a culture. You're a Christian. And that is pure ignorance. Okay? And thank God the Apostle Paul knew that there was culture. And the great passage in the Bible to help you understand cross-cultural ministry is found in 1 Corinthians 9. Beginning at verse 19. Paul was a missionary. He got it. He understood it. Because he was an ethnocentrist. He had basically been a racist. He describes himself as a, you know, such a zealous Jew. He was a Pharisee. And he was persecuting the church. And remember, as you read the book of Acts, uh, the Jews could tolerate pretty much anything except the idea that Gentiles would be included. That was what made them furious. And when that cultural barrier was crossed, that's when they went to kill uh, Paul, especially at the end of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is this fantastic story of how the mystery of God was revealed. Uh, because Paul talks about that in Ephesians 3. He said, that's what was given to me, was the administration of disclosing this mystery, which has been kept hidden. What was the mystery? That now the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Christ. This great cultural inclusion of all the peoples of the world into a fellowship with God 
It's what the gospel is about. It's what happened at the cross. And, you know, here in Ephesians 2, you get the theology of it. You get the theology that reconciliation is not an activity of the church. It is an activity of God at the cross. It was not just, you know, theologically, if you know what I'm talking about, pay attention, here it comes. The cross is not just about justification. It's also about reconciliation. If Ephesians chapter 2 is true, you've got to say amen. Thank you. Okay. Now, he is our peace, is what it says. God took the two, made them one, in his son, Jesus Christ. He broke down the middle wall of partition, ending the hostility. Those are some sweet words. So reconciliation is the message we have from God. It is the ministry we have from God. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so Paul says, hey, look, some amazing things have happened to me because of the gospel. He said, I used to look at all men according to the flesh. And I used to look at Christ that way. When I looked at Jesus according to the flesh, I thought as a Pharisee, he was just a Jew. And he, a man, was making himself out to be God. And so I thought it was right that they crucified him. And I thought it was right that I helped kill Stephen, who was preaching that. But then Jesus caught me on the road to Damascus and opened my eyes to believe he said, now, from now on, I look at no man after the flesh. But if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So Paul's whole view of humanity changed. But as he went around preaching the gospel, he realized that some of his Jewish fellow believers, known as the Judaizers, thought that if you were going to become a Christian, not only should you become a Christian, you really needed to become a Jew. That's what the, the Judaizers are all about. Uh, oh, oh, okay, you say you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I, I really think to be a real follower of God, you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to follow the Mosaic law. I mean, come on. We Jews are it, and, if you, and, and, and we're not racist, unless you're not a Jew. So you can, whatever color you are, you can become a Jew. We just got to circumcise and you got to follow the law. They thought they were doing God's business. Paul was, he said, I wish they'd go all the way. It's really nasty. <laughs> in Galatians. He said, I wish you guys would just not, don't stop at circumcision. Keep going. Just cut yourselves up. Because this is horrible. You, you are trying to add something to grace. He said, no, 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 no. The Gentile does not have to become a Christian. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. The very book that says in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, is all about the fact that a Greek can stay a Greek in Christ. People love to quote that verse and they love to say, I don't see color anymore. Which is not what it's teaching. If we don't see color anymore, why did John tell us who he saw in heaven? No, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 9, he said... Though I'm free from all men, I make myself a slave to everyone in order that I might by all means win some. He said, look, to the Jew, I became as a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those who are under the law. To those without the law, I became like one without the law, though I myself am under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became as one who is weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men in order that I by, by all means win some. That's the strategy of cross-cultural ministry. It is a process of enslaving yourself to another group of people. And that's where the pain is. That's why people don't do it. We, we, we have heroes who do it. They're called missionaries. We think, oh yeah, you're a missionary. So when you go to another country, what's the first thing a missionary is supposed to do? Learn the language. And they'll tell most missionaries, don't do anything for a year. Learn the language. Live in the culture. You know, we actually have some missionaries who spend a career and never learn the language. And in fact, they get mad at the culture. 
you know, you, you go, it's really, there's a whole process, you can sort of, uh, cultural jubilance, where you're really happy about being a new culture, and a culture shock, when you realize, these people are different. <laughs> and you can't figure out, is the difference just difference, or is it right and wrong? And a lot of us are so culturally bound, we can't see differences in culture without saying, that's right, I'm right, and you're wrong. And then, when you live in that situation long enough, you have cultural fatigue, and you just can't take it. And that happens. There is a special gift from God, it's sort of a missionary gift, that enables people to become a slave to a whole, not just an individual. It's not enough in Christianity to say, I love you, and I'm going to be a slave to you, but I don't like your people. That's horrible. But, you know, in America, we've had that conversation for hundreds of years. We have people coming up to each other, you know, uh, you're not like other black people. How are you supposed to take that? <laughs> you know? Um, I get that a lot. From black people. You're not like other white people. Now that makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a little different context of history. <laughs> but it's really insulting. You know, to say that you like me but you don't like my people group. So you really don't like all of me, do you? I mean, there's some aspects of me that even I'm uncomfortable with, but they come with the package. Okay? And Paul says, I make myself a slave. That's rad. That is what cross-cultural ministry is. And what we're saying in America today is we have to take what used to be thought as simply going overseas, we have to realize that whole congregations have to do that if they are in multicultural and multi-ethnic neighborhoods. Why? Because we have a history of oppression. We have a history of racism. And it, it's not enough for you to be, say, a monocultural white church and say to black people, y'all come. Y'all are welcome. But give yourself up. That, that is like cruel and unusual punishment because what you're saying is you're already a minority in the rest of society. You already face injustice. Now give up your cultural and racial identity and change and be like... It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. We, we add a cultural qualification to the gospel. And you, you know, so uh, I've had pastors tell me, well, they're all welcome, but they don't come. Why? And again, the question that Joan and I often are asked, can we have black people come without changing anything about ourselves? When the first time we heard that, we died laughing. You know, and I did. I literally laughed. I said, no. <laughs> it's an absurd idea. Now, our, you know, you said, but, but I know this church. Black people go to his church, and, and they're, they're a monocultural. Yes, there are always folk who do that. And a lot of folk, especially for you black folk who are in PCA churches, there are, there are quite a few white PCA churches where there's just one to six. And they wonder, how come I'm the only one? And nationally, by the way, there, there's a, we have African-American leaders in our denomination who are trying to help y'all say you're not the only ones. There are other people here struggling. We have about 55 African-American pastors in the denomination. When I came in, there was one. Okay, not me. There was one. Okay, black pastor. And to see that growth is wonderful. But you can often feel very alone. Joan has often, you know, when she was the first black student at Covenant College and the first black woman to graduate, the first black MTW missionary, you know, when she's often, she, she has to be with me. We walk in. She's the only, sometimes the only woman in the room, the only black woman in the room. And she has to give explanations for black people to every white person who asks, why do you all, all vote for Obama? You know, stuff like that. And she has to give an answer. You know, that's wearying, all right? But she had, when she married me, and when she, and she made a conscious choice. 
but she didn't always realize the total price of it. Confess that. She might have run away screaming. <laughs> okay. But she has been willing over and over again to pay that price. To answer one more question from a white person who should know better. Okay. And I will tell you, when you're in a cross-cultural church, you pay the price of discipling other people, not just in the Bible, but in culture. You become a discipler to help people in the journey of trying to figure this out. And I will tell you this, when it happens, it's beautiful. Uh, now, there are a lot of people who get discouraged about it, a lot of people who get angry about this. And there's a lot of debate, discussions that go on. This will happen all the way till we get to heaven. We are not going to solve all these issues, okay, in our lifetimes. But I will tell you that there are moments, especially, you know, in the 40-something years of I've been at New City Fellowship, there are days you go to church and you feel like you're in heaven. I mean, there are things that happen that are just unbelievable. And it could have only been God that did. That's all right. That's all right. So, yes? So how do you think you can move from like a dual cultural to a truly multicultural state? Because I feel like one danger is that perhaps I might be in a PCA church and it becomes, I begin to see, let's see, in, in, for example, in worship where they are truly embodying black culture, which is great. And, and there's improvement. But then, how do we not, black culture and white culture, then become oppressors for other cultures? Where you're saying, oh, Latinos, this is the right culture, or oh, Asians, this is the right culture. Okay, forget that question, because we're nowhere close to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do want to say. <laughs> Now, let me give you some tips of what happens in the, in the dynamic of cultural. Every worship service, no matter what church you go to, is actually a cultural hybrid. There is no pure white worship or a pure African-American worship. Everybody's borrowing from each other. We borrow songs. We might change the tune. We might change the style. But we're all learning from each other. And we make it our own. That's okay. That's cool. Um, we try not to use the word multicultural, I don't, because I find that that often brings confusion. In other words, there was a very famous church in the 70s called Circle Church in Chicago. A white pastor named David Maines created it. He, he recruited an African-American pastor, Clarence Hilliard, to help him. And they would be white one Sunday, black the second Sunday, and Asian the third Sunday. And it lasted a couple years, and then it blew up. And it blew up because instead of really integrating, really being cross-cultural, they just emphasized the differences. And they began to judge each other. That's a horrible way to do church. So you're going to become one thing. Uh, this particular church over here may be more African-American. There won't be both cross-cultural. This might be more anglo this might be more Latino. Um, now, the great thing about we found at, at New City and Cross Code, a lot of other kind of ethnicities are drawn to us. Even though, and we do a lot of Latino music, we do a lot of Swahili music, um, even though they don't have a, a, a great percentage of our folk. But what draws them is the surrendering of power by white people. Because the power differential in cross-cultural churches is important. Yes? Actually, uh, so I'm a music director, and I raised my hand before I had a perfectly formed. Okay, well, you uh, but, but, work I, on it. But, tr but truly, um, the thing that I'm concerned about for myself is something like tokenism. I, um, I am actually decent at a lot of uh, styles of music. That feels weird to be like promoting myself, but sure, right, right. I think it is actually the case that I, that I can do it. Um, <laughs> but um, I have a friend who actually was not very interested in me, for example, singing Spanish songs, even though we have very few people that speak Spanish, because it doesn't actually reflect the leadership in our church today. 
there's not anybody currently on our staff who primarily speaks Spanish, mm -hmm. and people come to church and be like, oh. Mm -hmm. it, so, uh, so if you're hearing a song in Spanish, it's like, oh, now there will be people that will understand kind of like my background and can really uh, like pastor me in some way. That doesn't exist. And so it would feel a little bit like a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, it, it's a little... And it's fair. If yeah, you don't have so, Latino so, people so, in church, why are you singing in Spanish? Look, I mean, so this, we do have some, but then the particular person I'm thinking of didn't want to be like, oh, Oh my lord, she's doing this song just for me. Now I gotta look around like, mm -hmm. I feel like everyone's telling me. Like, that, 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 you know, that's a good friend. So, so, I mean, the conversation was sort of in good fun, sort of, but, you know, point taken. I, I, uh, I mean, I think about this stuff pretty regularly, and um, especially as regards music. Uh, and, and I, you know, frankly, I would love to work myself out of a job. I'm very aware that I, that I am. Because I'm married to one of the pastors, like that's a lot of power held in in a concentrated space, and I'm not crazy about it. If I would go to another church and see that, I'd be like, goodbye. I don't want to go to this church because I see that you guys are related. How did you get that job? By the way, I'm still mad because I would never hire her. <laughs> well, it's just something I'm, I'm conscious of, and I, I, I don't, you know. Um, Chad's the one that needs to be worried. We yeah. know you got the job. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get this job because you were sleeping with the pastor? <laughs> well, it's, it's a thing where I feel like in a perfect world, like I would like to be able to work myself out of a job because mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have any particular, I, you know, I, I don't care about being, being in charge. You know, just like there's actually not anyone else that can functionally do the job right now in our congregation. Okay. Uh, so that, that's sort of a, a weird place where I, you know, it's unusual. I think for. <laughs> Like, is there a question in this? Um, what, like, what, yeah, because you're talking about like giving it power, like doing songs from, you know, I do, I think we do a reasonable job with that, mm -hmm. but like, I'm just very conscious, especially if you made the move to Dudley Square, like, I, I do not want to be the person being like, oh, I did this, girl. you're welcome, we're here, like, that just, that's just so outrageous. Um, it seems that the Lord led us specifically to that space, yeah, but yeah. I, I'm very, you are in a very tough place. Yes, and and I would prefer that we have. I mean, what? I, I, aside, not aside from. Clearly, we pray. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that we do. There you go. But but like, even if I have musical skill, uh -huh. I am still concerned about. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, that it could be perceived as. Mm -hmm. um, Patronizing. Yep, paternalistic, any of those things. Let me tell you, this that. whole field is fraught with danger. Yeah. It's fraught with misunderstanding. And on any given Sunday, you have people show up and they make judgments about you and the whole church. It's, hap it's always happened to us. From the very earliest days, we had people, you know, in our earliest days, it was mostly white college students and faculty 40 African-American kids, white preacher, a couple of black college students. We have uh, maybe uh, some person come in the door, they look and they go, oh, that's tokenism. Mm. Walk out. This is a paternalistic outfit. They, had, they judged our hearts just like that. This is the danger of a cross-cultural church because people see first. You see color. No matter what they may claim. You see color and you say, whose church is it? Who's in charge here? What's the culture like? You're coming there, risk, you're taking a great risk of misunderstanding. You're taking a great risk of people accusing you of something you don't want any part of. You want to do it right. Amen. It's a risk worth taking. We have uh, our music and worship director, James Ward. He's been, John and I, and he went to college together. He has been part of our church for all of these years. He is still learning cross-cultural music. He has a master's in jazz. He's probably the best there is in the country. I, I know, he's good. Yeah, <laughs> okay. But he's still, on any given day, you talk to him, and he's still struggling with the issue. He's just been rebuked by a black person that he didn't play a song right. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's still trying to figure it out. I have never met a man 
who is such a servant. And, and I will tell you, when he dies, there are going to be a lot of black folks at his funeral who say some awfully wonderful things about him. He has just laid his life down. But it, the struggle never ends. It, and I would say it comes with a being associated with Jesus Christ. I'm willing to bear the shame of it for Jesus' sake. Okay? We're always trying. We're always on the road. I would, I would never say our church has arrived. But I, I, would, I, would, I, I have stopped thinking it's experimental. Because it does work. Okay? And you do pray. And you have to use wisdom. And there are times, you know, well, like as Latinos started becoming part of our church. When, when did we add a Latino greeting, a Spanish greeting? When did we start translating the songs and the scripture every Sunday in the, in the Spanish? When did we start getting headphones for translation? You know, it just depended as the population grew. And we added ESL classes and we added fiestas and outreach into the Latino community. And so we had to blend. Cross-cultural worship is a blended worship. Mm -hmm. So ours is very blended. I mean, there are Sundays when we, you'll hear Latino, you'll hear Spanish songs, you'll hear Swahili songs, maybe even Gujarati, you know. But it is very blended. The question isn't, in my opinion, where you've arrived, it's the intention. That is where I think you have a right to say to me, what is your intention and how are you proving it? And we prove it in a lot of different ways. We prove it where we are. We prove it who we go after in evangelism. Who we raise up as leaders. Who we try to disciple. Where we spend our money. How do, where are we trying to learn cultural forms of worship? How are we sharing? How are we collaborating, even with black churches or Latino churches? Which we do. So there are a lot of, a lot of issues but I think the power differential really makes it attractive to a whole lot of different folk. Okay? Um, it, it is kind of like a dance. You don't always know. You know, when I first started, people would say, okay, you're, you're starting this church, you're a white guy. When are you leaving? Like, what do you mean? Well, you know, you're going to hire a black pastor, right? You need to do that and get out of here. And their idea still went back to the School of Church Growth teaching of Donald McGavern and C. Peter Wagner using what they call the homogeneous unit principle. If you want a church to grow, it has to grow as one kind of folk. And say, yeah, we could do that. That's not our intention. Do black people need black pastors? Yes! yes. Black children need to see black People up front, they need to see black pastors. They need to see godly men and women leading the church. They need those role models. Amen, without a doubt. So what commitment will your church have to making that happen? What kind of internships will you give to black men for the ministry? How will you help them go to seminary? How many of them will come into your pulpit? How many black people preach from your pulpit every year? You need to be asking those questions. Because I tell people, if you can't own them, borrow them. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm serious. If, 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 you, know, every, you know, a lot of churches say, we would hire a black man if you just find one for us. And uh, one of our black pastors, Thurman Williams, he preached a sermon once, hire them and they will come. <laughs> and he said, that's a great myth. You don't just go out and hire the first black man. You say, we need you on staff because that will attract black people. You know, the Bible says lay hands suddenly on no man. So that man has to be as godly and as qualified as everybody else, and he has to have a passion for this kind of church. Not every black pastor in our denomination wants to work with poor people. Not every black pastor in our denomination wants to work with white people. Most of our black pastors work in cross-cultural churches. We only have three or four all-black PCA churches. Most everybody else is diffused out in the denomination. So, you can't assume everybody, but the question is, what is your commitment to raising up black leadership? And, man, it is, yes, ma'am. Can I have a question? Cross-cultural in the sense of, I know we've talked a lot about black and white, but that's not the only, the issue in this country is mm -hmm. the race thing that hasn't 
resolve itself over 500 years or however many hundred years. But when you're talking cross-cultural, is it all races? The inclusion in the church of all races or the PCAs, you know, of all races? Because you have, um, like, Christ the King, we have Asian, mm -hmm. you know, so we have some Spanish, we mm -hmm. have, you know, so to me, the focal point cannot be on just, you know, the two major races mm. that hasn't resolved their issues. Mm. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, are we talking cross-cultural in the sense of all races, mm. trying to get all races well, you know, into your on churches? Well, on a biblical level, yeah. we want people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Amen? Um, some of those will always be in their own ethnic community. Mm -hmm. There is nothing sinful about an all-black church or an all-white church or an all-Latino church. Mm -hmm. It becomes sinful when they re retain that identity by refusing to win others to Christ mm -hmm. and bring them in. When that happens, that, that's not a church that loves people. That's a church that loves their ethnicity <coughs> and protects it. So, what happens is we often hear, especially in big cities, you have changing neighborhoods. You have whole immigrant groups who move in. Whereas at one time this was a German neighborhood, now it's something else. You know, uh, I remember I was in Chicago with a brother named Manny Ortiz who's gone to heaven now, but he was a he's Puerto Rican, grew up in New York City, he calls himself a Neo-Rican. And he was in Chicago and the evangelical, what is it? It's a Norwegian background church. So they, this Norwegian church, and, and all the stained glass windows, the language was in Norwegian. And they said, the neighborhood is now Puerto Rican and Mexican, and we would like you to come in and pastor here and win these people to this Norwegian church. And that was a changing neighborhood. They gave up the idea of keeping the Norwegians. They gave up power. They basically gave them the property. What we're saying is, we would like a demonstration of servanthood. We would like an actual demonstration that we could actually have church together. You know, uh, Tom Skinner used to say integration was defined as the time the first black family moved on the block to the last white family moved out. That's not integration. That's transition. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of churches in transition. The question is, whatever God provides you in your neighborhood, your community, that's your opportunity for missions. That's your opportunity for inclusion. That's when your call is, how, how do I do this? And here's, here's a struggle we have. Ethnic minorities tend to find their minority church as their only safe place to be in a given week, culturally. So you'll have Korean churches. They want to stay Korean. And Portuguese churches will want to stay Portuguese. And it's really, really hard for them. The number one racial issue and cultural issue in America is the white black one. And if we can help get that sorted out, maybe we can sort these others out. So otherwise, it's assimilation, or you maintain an ethnic identity as your church, or you figure out how to do it together with integrity. And cultural integrity is a great value of ours. I do not want black people to stop being black. I don't expect white people to stop being white. But I do expect everybody in this church to give up something, to gain much more. That's the hard part. Yeah. <laughs> because most people think you have to, you have to give up. You know, you start talking race in this country, and the whites are guilty, and the blacks are like armed. You know, because of the experiences, and it's like no one kind of like just sits down and listens without the level of guilt. Yeah. You know, you know, and just to listen. Yeah. Now, I will tell you that my experience is that in Jesus Christ, it can happen. It does happen. And uh, we are, so in case some of you don't know, 
your churches, uh, both here in Roxbury now and in Dorchester, are part of our network, which is called the New City Network. And these are churches that are urban, cross-cultural, include the poor, have joyful worship, and sound biblical teaching. And we are now in about 70 cities. So in the last five years, it has grown pretty fast. So I just want you to know it is happening around the country and even in different countries. Uh, we have a new city in London, or some in Kenya. Uh, so God is at work bringing these folk together. And I will tell you, Africa, we have churches in Congo, Togo, and Kenya. And in all of those countries, the issue is tribalism. And bringing tribes together who formerly were killing each other. In Kenya, we have a church that's African-reaching Asians, which is really, there's been so much racism and hatred there. God is, the gospel works, is what I'm telling you. Reconciliation is real, and it's, it's full of the hope of the gospel. But it is hard. There's no doubt about it. So, and not everybody's called to it. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced there, you know, and the, the, I don't mind you not being called to it. I do mind you being a racist and don't give it a chance. <laughs> Those are two different things. You know, and, and there are uh, steps along the way. Like, you must say, oh, I love being in this cross-cultural church until I have children. Or until my children have to go to Sunday school with those inner city kids. Or until they have to go to this youth group. And boy, you see where people's uh, standards and what their demands are. Yeah. Could you give us a glimpse of your prayer life throughout this process? Sometimes as Christians... It's like this. <laughs> because as Christians, we like formulas. We like somebody to tell us how to. And you keep telling us how hard it is. But as Christians, we don't want to hear how hard it is. We want, we want the answers so that we don't have to make any mistakes and all we taste is success, one success after the other. <laughs> and I want to know what that guy who saw that, that young, young black girl and says, I'm going to marry her. I want that kind of audacity because that's a dumb idea you had. <laughs> but, you, but you didn't quit. And I want to know how a guy doesn't quit. How does a guy have a vision like that? What? How did, you, how did you cry out to God through these years to make it happen? Because you must have had frustrations and doubts and all that stuff that the rest of us mortals go through. <laughs> so. Yeah, please forgive me if I in any way present myself as a hero. Yeah. Uh, we're all sinners. And so much of what's been given to me, I just use the word grace to explain. Nor would I try to describe myself as a great prayer warrior and a great man of faith? And a lot of my prayers are just like yours. It's like, help! <laughs> uh, you know, my prayer life's made up a lot yeah. of that. Yeah. You know, Jesus, now! And you make mistakes. Now, I will say that I believe in talking to God all the time. I mean, I don't, I don't need formal times yeah. in a specific room to talk to God. I have to talk to him all the time uh, because I need help. And I also know uh, that I'm selfish and self-centered. I don't like loving people. And uh, just like everybody else, they get on my nerves. And so that's when you need grace, you know. Uh, and you learn the hard way. I wish, I wish there was an easier way. In some ways, you get to learn because of my mistakes. Just you being here listening to this is information that no one was giving to me 40, 50 years ago. Now, I learned from some wonderful men of God. One was a black preacher named Tom Skinner. You've never, he's passed away, gone to heaven, but you might have go online sometime and try to hear some of his sermons. They were very radical for his day. He's one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. But he was the first man I ever met who took the gospel and applied it to social issues. So he, and he was a personal friend of mine, and I, I considered him a mentor. Another black man came into my life named John Perkins, and he also is a mentor. He was my daughter's honorary grandfather last month at her wedding. 
And when my daughter shows up at his 5.30 in the morning Bible study uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, so these kind of men have radically changed my life. But they were men who, who absolutely loved people. And I don't know if you've ever met John Perkins. He's uh, Seven, 87. 87 years old, still on fire for God, preaching great. And he was tortured by Mississippi State Patrol officers back in the 70s uh, in a jail cell. And it was at that moment that as he looked at their depravity, he felt sorry for them. And he decided he was going to love white people. And... Uh, became a great instrument of reconciliation. So when you say, I wish it were easy, I look at his life and go, thank God I haven't been tortured. <laughs> you know, um, there's a price to be paid for this. And just when we think, okay, racism's over in America. Somebody will do something crazy. Somebody will walk into a church prayer meeting and start killing people. You know, I cannot promise you that that won't happen to you. You're, you're here in Boston. You are probably not going to pay the price that civil rights workers paid in the 50s and 60s in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. All right? Take that for granted. But don't you be naive to think that you can do this kind of thing and get away with it easy. As Joan was saying, there are black folks who will question you if you're black. Why are you going to that white church? And you will feel uh, a real accusation that you're disloyal, mm -hmm. that you are not standing in solidarity with black folk. And the exact opposite is true. Because the black folks in my church are even more committed to the cause of African Americans than they ever were before. We, we celebrate Black History Month in our church. All of February. I mean, it's a big deal for us. So, the black folks in my church are very committed to the cause of the black community. They're leading some of the marches in St. Louis right now against the police injustice. Uh, Mike Higgins and Michelle Higgins are very much part of that. And Mike was my associate pastor in the city. Michelle grew up in my church. Um, so, the, you know... Well, it, it, I can't give you easy, but I can give you joy. And, if, and we sum up, uh, we say, if you could describe our worship in one word, it's joy. And that's how we try to describe what we do. It comes with a lot of tears sometimes, uh, but it's really fantastic. Now, uh, I need to give you uh, just a couple of practical things. I do want to say this. If you ever want to see something funny, about a white guy going to black worship. There is a thing on YouTube by Gary Owen. He's a white comedian. And uh, you might want to look that up on YouTube. White guy goes to black church. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's just sort of a humorous... Uh, his, he's married to a black woman, and he, she took him to a black church, and it's just his... It's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> Then I will tell you, you ought to go on YouTube, and if you want to see some of our worship at New City, uh, you can look up Death is Ended by James Ward. Uh, that's our choir, and you might want to, we sing that at all the funerals of New City folk. We end our funerals with that choir, and he wrote it uh, when the first person, member of our church died, black woman, and uh, that just gives you a picture of uh, really the cross-cultural nature. He writes a lot of music for a church that, that is this really great blend of stuff. Um, um, also, while you're getting at resources, uh, New City, ncfmusic.com has a lot of resources, both uh, written and a lot of music resources. They're, they're actually, um, yeah, the words and the music are all there. So you can just download it and print it. It's all there. It's dot com? Dot com. Okay. If that doesn't work, go to dot org, but you should get it. Now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we had an argument. <laughs> um, <laughs> if that's all they were, I'd be real happy. <laughs> um, 
we, as part of the uh, New City Network, we offer some training to our churches. And uh, the way this network works, it's an affiliation, it's a, uh, an affinity type uh, network. I wish that we had millions of dollars that we could give you to help you plant your church. But usually what we ask you is to give us money. Um, so all of our members, we ask them to give us $1,000 a year or have us come like we've come this weekend and help pay for that trip to train you. But we offer as a team training to each of our churches, but we also have some conferences. And some of those conferences are, Robert, help me. Uh, Reconciliation and Justice. Okay. 2018 will be the 23rd, 24th of January in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, that's in January. What were the dates again? 23rd and 24th, which is a Tuesday, Wednesday. All right, and that is in St. Louis. Correct. Then? Uh, in, in end of May, the Monday of uh, Memorial Day. Do you love that squeak? Okay. Uh, the Urban Ministry Training Week. Urban Ministry Training Institute. Okay. Training Institute? Correct. And we spend a whole four or five days on cross-cultural ministry, mercy ministry, community development, cross-cultural worship, and every evening we're out doing, teach you how to do a hands-on Bible club in an inner city neighborhood. Uh, so it's very hands-on, and uh, so we do that every year, the last week of May, and it costs 150 bucks. We put you up in members' homes, um, so if you can get down there. Has anybody here ever been to it? Nobody? No. Okay. Where is it? Hmm? It's in Chattanooga. Oh, thank you. Very good question. That is in Chattanooga. Okay. Great city to visit. The Reconciliation and Justice is $75, the one in St. Louis. If you let them know in advance, they will try to find housing for you as well. Yeah. So we do a lot of these conferences on the cheap. The big expense is you getting there. Okay. If somebody wants to go, let me know. <laughs> I'll help you get down there. All right. You heard them. Are we done? No, no, we got a few more. Yeah. Oh, because I have one to add. You have the, uh, the New City Network Music Conference. Okay, called Cross Cultural. Cross, yeah, and it's traditionally every other year, which 2018 is another year that will be. Music and worship. Uh, 18 will be at St. Paul's in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta? And the date? They haven't uh, formalized the date yet. I know it's in July. That's correct. He said he'd let me know as soon as they actually have the dates. Okay. Then uh, LDR. All right. LDR stands for? Leadership Development and Resource. All right. And that is in St. Where, oh, well, I don't, where's it going to be next year? It's in St. Louis. All right. More than likely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is Labor Day. <laughs> Labor Day weekend. Oh, no. They also have started calling it Black Homecoming. <laughs> so a lot of African Americans in the PCA uh, gather there over that. And uh, we get to see each other. Yeah, you get to see each other. <laughs> great worship, great preaching. A lot of. Yeah, so that's done in partnership with with uh, you know Watch African American Ministries of the PCA, mm -hmm. and RAN has also got a place in that. Okay. Anything else? Yes, our leadership uh, summit. Because I know that's two different things every other year. Yeah. Okay. This year it is uh, October thirtieth through November first at Ridge Haven which is outside of Brevard, North Carolina, which is outside of Asheville, North Carolina. All right. North Carolina. Correct. All right. And this year they're working on intercultural development inventory. So you find out where you are in that thing. Every other year we go on a cruise, so your churches should put aside money to send your pastor and his wife on the cruise. Uh, so we do that. <laughs> so our, finance, our finance committee just responded. Go put that in your fundraising. Uh, <laughs> they need money. 
ready to go, and they also need somebody to volunteer to take care of the kids while they're Pastors aren't the only, and pastor can choose to bring anybody else from his church. It just, I will tell you, uh, it, that five days it costs about a thousand bucks for a couple, not including your transportation, to get to the port that we leave from. So we usually leave on Monday, get back on a Saturday, and uh, it's it's we meet about eight or nine times together. And a lot of great training, great uh, interaction, as well as rest. And uh, and we last year we were able to give five scholarships. So uh, maybe God will provide that again. Um, CCDA. Also oh, CCDA, sorry. which is not a <laughs> conference, but it's a conference that we attend pretty much in mass. CCDA, and you can go to ccda.org. Uh, <laughs> to find out more about it, but every year they have an annual conference. This year it's in Detroit. Correct. When? Uh, it will be October 4th to the 7th, so next week. Okay. So the Chicago will be 2018. All right. So if you are interested in a Christian approach to community development, two or 3,000 people come to get lots of seminars, lots of great training. It is not PCA. Alice, Alice Comdrew, who just had to leave early, she's spoken at that conference before. She's a regular over there. Yes, honey. Another thing that is not PCA that's happening in November is the Multicultural Worship Leaders Network, and it's going to be November 2nd through 3rd in Columbia. And they are more interdenominational slash Baptist, but um, we do a lot of stuff with them. <laughs> They come to our worship conference and do theirs, and they, they do some really good stuff. But you were talking about uh, extending yourselves to other nationalities. Their worship leaders routinely and teach songs in Korean and Gujarat, and I mean, they, they do it all, Portuguese. Where and when? It's in Columbia, Maryland, November 2nd, 2nd through 3rd. And they've written books. They probably have a website. They have a newsletter. That's Nikki Lerner. That's Nikki Okay. So those are some practical things, opportunities for training. Yes. The MA Mercy Conference. Is huh? yep. Since that is under us. <laughs> that will be, I'm not sure. Is that Nashville? I'm not, I can't remember. No, that's going to be in Maryland. Maryland, uh, the first weekend in March. Okay. That will be at Wallace Memorial. Oh, thank you. Uh, in Silver Spring. Mm -hmm. it's, in, uh, it's near Silver Spring. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. College Park. College Park. Yeah. I still got it. The dementia has not totally captured me yet. <laughs> Most of these conferences are listed on our website, which is the new city network org, and we have conferences. Yes. The NewCityNetwork.org is our website. Uh, we invite you to see that and look at it. And uh, pray for us, uh, please. We're not perfect. We make a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of tension these days, uh, even in the Christian community, about issues of race and racism and injustice. Should we be more against, should we fight against racism? Should that be your focus? Or should we be for reconciliation? And it's almost like this division is taking place. My answer is both. It's always both. Um, uh, people say, we can't talk about reconciliation because there was never any conciliation. So why are we talking about it? And we say, well, we talk about it because it's biblical. It's not a human made-up word. This is a God word. And yes, we were united at one time. It was called the Garden of Eden. And then it was called right before the Tower of Babel. And the human race has been divided. But the message of the cross is a message of reconciliation. And if the cross does not solve it, we have no hope. Uh, nor is the quest for justice achievable, ultimately, without the kingdom of God coming to earth. Should we fight for justice? All the time. It's a God's character. God loves justice. He's the God of justice. We ought to be people of justice. But it is naive to think that through our political maneuvering, we will achieve it in a world of sin. 
Some people ask me, are you a transformationalist? That is, do I believe that Christianity can change the world? And my answer to that is only temporary. In other words, in a local place, in a local time, I believe the gospel changes communities and it changes people. But I believe we live in a fallen world and until the cataclysmic return of Christ comes, it will not be an eternal change. That's my view of it. Now, if you believe you can bring the kingdom of God into the world through acts of justice, be my guest. Happy to see you do it. In the meantime, I'll do what I can. I'll keep preaching the gospel and try to live with the realism that there's sin always with us. Because the problem here is this. I bring my own sin with me. It's not just your sin that bothers me. It's mine. And I'm waiting for the day when I'll do it no more. I'll be with the Lord and I'll be like Him because I'll see Him as He is. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to put out a paper if anybody would like to get our newsletter. It comes out about once a month. And uh, we'd be happy to keep in touch. Oh, Joan, I'm going to up your salary. I know. <laughs> I'm going to get a little Pastor Keck, are we done? Yeah. Uh, in we have a couple minutes. If anybody wants to ask any more questions, does anybody have anything? Sure.